We uh, finished the seven letters last week. The plan over the, the coming weeks is to continue through Revelation, but to, to sort of look at some of the major sections and uh, just help us understand a bit more about what God is saying to us at this time. It's been really helpful for us as leaders to, to prepare these sermons and go through the seven letters, and we, we kind of sense that it's been good for us as a church to do so as well. And may we not forget those messages, that the, they're all online, you can revisit them as well online. So uh, we're going to read Revelation chapter 4 uh, at this point, and this is what John wrote down from his vision. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and before me, there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Let's say together those last words as we worship him. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In this time of listening, of thinking, Grant understanding and faith. Continue to teach your churches and your people what it means to worship the risen Lamb. Amen. This is the, uh, the second major section of uh, the letter that John writes. It's called Revelation, that he received in exile from Patmos. It's the second section, the first main section, there was the introductory bit. The second section were these seven letters to the seven churches that they were written to those churches in Western Turkey, and they, they teach churches, local congregations, what it means to be alive for Jesus in their day and age, and we have heard something of that. And it's like in chapter four, 
Jesus kind of says from the, the nitty-gritty of what it's like to be local people in a local place, working it out day by day as people of faith in their culture and their environment with all the struggles and strains of life. He says, come up here and look. See, see things now that will help you in the day-to-day faithful living, the struggle of persecution, the challenge of integrating faith and life. Here, take a step backwards. Not backwards, but have a step up and see something so significant. And John's gaze and John directs us to see a heavenly throne room. I don't know if you noticed as we read that the throne, the word the throne, occurs again and again. It's the central motif, the heart, not only of the the space that John could see. And his gaze was directed towards. But in this passage, the throne is the repeated place that we are drawn back to again and again. Again, three quarters of the times that the word throne is used in the New Testament occur in the book of Revelation. It's a central theme drawing us back to know that God is on the throne in heaven and will not be displaced. That he is living and ruling there in the place of all authority and power and splendor. He is on the throne, people of God. For the churches in their place of worship and struggle, they need to remember this. It's as if John is saying to the churches in this, and Christians who are struggling, who are backsliding, who may be lukewarm, have a look now. Remember, as he started in chapter 1, behold the vision and a reminder to come back to this vision of the one seated on the throne 12 times in this passage. John's way of saying, here is God. Here is God. A reminder in this world for us, a reminder into your life today, whether we're part of a a system that is corrupt and unjust and oppressive, whether we have the liberty, Jesus reigns. He is ruling that the earthly authorities cannot compare because they aren't on the throne of the universe, the throne of God. Jesus and God are. I'm glad there's some noddings. It's a statement of faith and one of the core beliefs as a church, the worldwide church. Again and again in Scripture, this is the reminder that it isn't the human rulers nor the principalities and powers, but God who reigns. Hallelujah. To Daniel, the prophet in the Old Testament, as Nebuchadnezzar set himself up as the ruler and said, I am the superior one, the reigning one. There is no other with more power than me, said the ruler Nebuchadnezzar to the Babylonians and the whole wide world. Daniel said, I'm going to burst your bubble. No, you're not. You're not in charge of all that there is. There is one greater. As John wrote to the persecuted church from the island of Patmos, a barren little rock with not much water kind of exiled, far from the movers and shakers and the, the, the living life of the empire of Rome. He receives this vision and he's reminded whatever forces are ranged against the church, have your eyes lifted. That the emperor at the time of AD 90 or thereabouts was this despotic ruler called Domitian who was opposing the church vehemently, was trying them, was persecuting them, was dragging them through the courts, removing their belongings, even removing their lives, doing everything he could to get the church to be stamped out. John says, because Jesus reveals it, the emperor is not the last word. There's a higher authority. 
see it differently. The Domitian, this ruler, had, had elicited this edict about himself that people were to address him as, Lord and God, worthy are you, Domitian. It's familiar language, isn't it? Worthy are you, Lord and God. And John says, don't speak of human beings. In those terms, there is one who truly has that title. John writes to the churches to us, turn back to the one who truly is the Lord and God, worthy of our true devotion, true worship. Don't be distracted by ruling parties and powers. All the things that glitter and say, follow me, attend to me, give me your time and energy. John says, see the one on the throne. The one on the throne who is the the focus of all the worship that's going on in the heavenly throne room. Notice in this passage, there's this clear divide between the one who is worshipped and the worshippers. I don't know how you envisage it if you've got a mind that pictures things as we read. There's, there's emeralds and rainbows and seas and thrones of the 24 elders and, and it's all symbolic in its language, but all of their gaze is directed to the throne of the heart of that place and the created worship the creator. All creation bows. A reminder of radical monotheism. There is only one who is worthy to receive any adoration and any love and any act of devotion, and it's him, isn't it? These amazing creatures and these elders that represent the 12 of the old and the 12 of the new, in other words, the completeness of all God's salvific history, all that he's done through the ages, all of his plans being worked out, all focuses on God. There is no other who should be worshipped and honoured. All creation, every dominion, every people, even the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire emperor should bow to him and his throne. It's emphasised in verse 3 of this, this rainbow. It speaks of his power over creation and echoes back to Genesis and the covenant to Noah after the flood. In verse 6, it talks about how there's this flat sea. That's a nice picture. You know, we take photographs, don't we, of lakes and seas that are dead calm and you get the reflections. But there's more to it in this passage. There's more to it because in Revelation at times, there's this picture of the sea that is turbulent and violent. And, and later in the book, you get those horrific pictures of beasts, horrible beasts, coming up out of the waters and savaging God's people and standing opposed and doing everything in their power to crush God's works. But before the throne, the sea is flat, without even a ripple. And it goes into this understanding in the people of God and Scripture that often the forces of chaos and evil and everything that is ranged against God come from those places, the untamed and the wild and the desperate But before the place of authority in God's sovereign reign, there isn't even the hint of a ripple of rebellion. Do you see what John is envisaging? That in this place, the absolute rule and reign of God is certain and worked out. There isn't even the hint of subterfuge or false worship. Such is the power of God. 
John helps us see this. He says, churches, have your minds changed again, reformed, redefined, to know who is in charge. And have your view of the world put in its correct context, relative, rel- rel- radically relativized. It's a tongue twister. Radically relativized. In other words, don't be downcast by what's going on in the life that we experience now. Have our heart and mind set upon the ruler and the one who is on the throne. In a world, as we will read in, in the prayer guide in Ramadan, that worships a religion that is militant in propagating other faiths and worship of other gods with oppression and sometimes tyranny, see who's on the throne. No one will knock him off. For Domitian, this emperor with great power and who is making the life of, of those believers awful, The picture John paints is this. It's like Domitian is just like a dirty small puddle in his influence. Who is this emperor who has all this great power, supposedly? He's puny and small and weak. Why? Because John sees the creator with his ocean before him. The whole seas are calm before him. He can move mountains and turn them into wax before him. Have your mind redefined by the greatness of God. Remember Guy on his weekend here, he said, have, you know, sometimes our faith is eclipsed. Do you remember that great picture? He said, sometimes little things can get in the way of something huge. And he used how you can pick up a small pebble and hold it in front of the sun and the sun is eclipsed. Sometimes things can get in our vision and our way and distort our perspective. But it doesn't remove the truth that the sun is so fantastically bigger than the tiny thing you've held up or is in the way. Do you see that? Have your thinking redefined. In chapter 4, this amazing vision of the throne room of worship of God, adored and honored rightfully, truly. And the reminder to the church is he is the one we honor. And I want to read chapter 5, and I want you to see something really profound. Then I saw in the right hand of him having seen all this glory of the throne at the heart and the worship duly given and greatly given again and again worthy. He says, Then I saw at the right of him who was sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, circled by the four living creatures and elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with Your blood you purchased men from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In the crescendo of chapter 4, this focus to the throne of all the living creatures and the 24 elders focused upon the glorious one. John's mouth must drop. This moment of unveiling, this unrolling of God's plans symbolized by the scroll. God's plans and purposes for the world that John would see finally what is going to happen of that moment that we're waiting for, of the one who would step forward to unroll and unveil God's plans and establish the kingdom of God once and for all. And it's not a climax, but there's this heart-rending silence. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Then all the shouts of praise And the singing and the great tumult of praise and adoration, silence. Because in all of time and in all of history, as the eyes of God rove, there is no one, no one who is worthy to open that scroll. Of all the people who've lived great lives, honorable lives, who've done good and right things who we would know in the books of history. None is worthy. I wonder in your imagination and your mind, how long does this silence last? As the whole of the created order is examined and searched for one, just one, Even now, a population of seven billion, not one who would be worthy. Not one found on the earth or in heaven or under the earth. And this heart-rending silence. Apart from the sobs of John on the throne room floor, crying, weeping bitterly, because he understands the impact That no one can bring heaven to earth. It's locked there. No one can fulfill the purposes of God because the scroll is unopened and he recognizes the hopelessness of that situation and he weeps and he weeps 
and as his tears puddle on the amazing floor in the throne surrounded by his majesty and glory. Weeping. John not embarrassed for a second because his heart is split in two. Because all that is seen, all the words that have been spoken, all the songs that have been sung, they don't count for anything in that moment. Locked in heaven, separated from earth, no one to implement and unveil the plans and purposes of God. No one to help his brothers and sisters dying and being, being tortured because of their lives. No one to rectify it. No one found it anywhere. And it's almost as if chapter 4 becomes a cruel picture. What's the point of all this glory locked up, divorced, separate in heaven, in the throne of God, if it doesn't make any difference here? No one there to see that God's will is done on earth as well as it is in heaven. And he cries, and he cries. Sometimes chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is where we are as Christians. But like John, we see this world and we think, where are you, God? And sometimes for the people of faith, the cynicism, well, it just doesn't seem to work and I'll withdraw and I won't... I won't press in anymore, and it just seems not to make sense. I pray that's not where you are. Because the other outworking is a bit like John, that we are broken and weep because we see the brokenness and pain of this world. And it breaks our heart. Because we understand that God is reigning, that he's on the throne, and we see the pain and the barrenness and the awfulness of the now, and it breaks us. But every time someone's an alpha or we witness to them and they say, no thanks, Jesus. You should break us. A loved child of God. Rejecting him again. That as we heard Chris describe the life and the lot of little children in Romania whose lives are desperate. And a week of love and attention will change them. It should break our heart that there's not more. And this is the paradox of faith, that we can be at the height of worship and celebrating God's goodness, and then we see the reality, and it seems, it seems bipolar. John's there. In the silence and the crying, and it comes to an end because one of the elders comes to him and stoops and says, don't cry. Look, verse 5, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Where there was desperation, no one. The elder says, look, there is one. In all of space and time, there's one. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And John picks himself up on the floor. And you know what it's like to weep, your eyes are blurry. And he wipes his eyes and he blows his nose from the, get the snot away and shakes, shakes his head and looks up and he, 
He has to wipe his eyes again because there's not a lion. There's a lamb. It's not Aslan, but it's like Larry. (laughs) And it's not like a lamb in the fields in spring. It's a lamb for the slaughterhouse. Standing as if it's been slain. This divine sheep, this lion, lamb, this wacky image with seven horns symbolizing perfect strength and seven eyes. The ability to see perfectly into all and every situation and place and time. Standing as if it's been slaughtered. See the contradictions? It's standing, but it's It's slain. Where is it? It's in the center of the throne in chapter 4. We've just said God is on the throne and here's this lion lamb, slain, living one. Not only that, but surrounded by the elders and all of the living of creation. And they worship this slain lamb as God is. Just in case you miss it. Verses 13 to 14. Again, the whole of the created realm worshiped God And the lamb in the same way, no distinction. Left in no doubt as to who this is. The same terms, the same honor, the same attribution of glory and power. That in the whole of creation, no creature could be found to open the scroll. Because this is no creature. That John puts the lamb on the divine side of the picture. Between the created and the creator, and the lamb is worshipped, Jesus. John, in his gospel earlier, right in the outset in chapter 1, from the words of John the Baptist, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the apostle John sees the unfolding of that picture and sees the slain lamb triumph. It's a radical picture. It's wacky. It doesn't make sense. Lamb-like, but triumphant. Lambs run away. Go in a field, they run off to mum. Lambs get taken to the butcher and put for Sunday lunch. We don't go up to lions, do we? We stay well away. John sees this is the victorious one, the triumphant one. And the symbolism of this, he's not a tearing, powerful beast who will ravage and maul and inflict death, but like a lamb, a deliverer, one who will be sacrificed in our place, not one to fear for all peoples. John uses a a particular word in in the Greek for this lamb. It's like little lamb. It's not even one now that's going to get taken off soon. It's it's like one of the little lambs, the lambkins. In John, it's a favorite title in 29 times. Look, the lamb of God, the lambkin of God, the gentle, gentle lamb of God, the crucified lamb. The one who came amongst us 
to love, without guile, who is meek and pure, and received all who came to him, little ones and religious and grown-ups, and never turned anyone away, the Lamb of God, the triumphant one, crucified, but standing, slain, yet victorious, now in all eternity. You see, love isn't one of God's strengths, nor is it one of God's strategies that failed, but love is the victory. In the unfolding of the scroll, in the outworking of God's purposes, self-sacrificial love triumphed. Hallelujah. Not military power, not coercion, not bribery, not abuse. True love. That's who God is. That's what God is like. The God will never be anything other than like Jesus is. And in the picture of the throne room with the Lamb at the right hand of God, that is the purposes and the character of the kingdom, isn't it? It's love. The Lamb who is slain but risen, unfolding the purposes and works of God. That's who we now belong to. That's the kingdom that is unfolding. That's the nature of his work. Aren't you glad? What does John tell us? Jesus is on the throne and God is not going to be chased off. He has ultimate power. When we pray for you, for if you're struggling with anything, it's not, will it, won't it? We trust in God. I was talking to a friend who had this lovely little image yesterday. He's, he's working in Sierra Leone. He's an eye doctor and he sees some dreadful things happening to people there. And he's got three little children and his wife and it's hot and there's mosquitoes and the children get those insects that lay their eggs under the skin and they have to pick them out from their little boy who's got heat rash and crying. And he misses his friends and they can't get stuff that they would want to. And we were talking about it and I was trying to encourage them and they said, but it's not really sacrifice, is it? It's not really suffering, is it? He said, because it's just about perspective. Because he said, it seems that way to us now, but once the veil will be parted and we will see God as we have in this picture of Revelation, we'll know that every sacrifice, every, every ounce of, of what we have done, have suffered for Jesus, it actually, God will reward and bless as we store up treasures in heaven. We think it's suffering and trial and, and hardship now, but he is on the throne, isn't he? And his eyes see what, how we live for him and how we struggle for him. And he blesses us now and onwards. Have your minds redefined. That victory is won over sin and sickness and the devil and death. Love has overcome. And it's won for all. It's not narrow, it's not for the select few, but from every single tribe and every single people, every single language speaker in this world. The Savior Jesus. There was a day and an age in, in church history 
a century, two centuries ago, where multiple people were raised up by God to go out and bring the good news. And they went to Africa and Asia and South America and they planted churches in Chipping Camden and funny little villages and towns. And the churches are still there because people knew that the gospel was for people who had not yet heard. The lamb is on the throne. And mission, mission agencies, and people are now saying, you know, there's a gap year program is just closed because there aren't people to go on it. The people who work with mission agencies say it's great when people come, but the numbers are so less. And in those days and ages, the life expectancy of a missionary was nine months because they died of yellow fever and malaria. And still God raised up wave upon wave of faithful servants who would go and tell the lamb is on the throne, slain for you. I pray that God would do a new thing as we pray for revival, stir his people. Let that vision of God, this throne room, these words of John that still hold true, redefine your mind, change your living. Amen? Amen. You know, the other thing I love, just in closing, what's the characteristic of worship in heaven? Singing. Worship is about our whole life. It's about everything we do in, in Romans. This is our spiritual act of worship, to, to, to be living sacrifices. But there's singing for worshipers, isn't there? They, they love these words, these songs. Do you know, I'm going to give you a challenge over this summer period. Would would you, as a people of God, learn these little phrases in chapter 4 and 5? They're not hard. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know it already. But learn them. You know, when we have open times of singing and you think, what have I got to say? I don't know. Well, here's some words. You're going to be singing them in the future. Let's do them now. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Can I just read you a little quote? Because we say amen very nicely. <laughs> Justin Martyr, uh, he lived in about 150 AD, a long time ago, tells us that the prayers always concluded with a vigorous amen by the congregation. Justin uses a colorful and enthusiastic word to describe their amen. And it translates, shout in applause. It says, the word expresses the conviction that not only would prayers be fulfilled by God in the future, but that fulfillment was already present in Christ. All the promises of God, Paul writes, find their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. That's why we utter the amen through him to the glory of God. Amen. Could be better, Let's stand together as we 